This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. One last tug on my green tea and away we go. Welcome, friends. Good to have you aboard. And uh, again, a special welcome to KLVT AM 1230 Lubbock, Texas, our brand new affiliate, the best in the West. Great to be part of High Plains, the High Plains Radio Network. And I believe KLVT will actually start uh, airing this broadcast in uh, early July. Uh, July 8th, I believe. So when that date rolls around, we'll say hello to KLVT all over again. That'll be just about the time I'm taking this program on the road uh, down to Kalamata in uh, southern Greece. And uh, we'll be broadcasting uh, from there live uh, throughout July and uh, a good part of August as well. Looking forward to that. Uh, Taking the, uh, the little guys with me. Uh, the mighty Aphrodite, unfortunately, not going to be able to make the trip. She's um, uh, busy with other projects here, but uh, she just got back from uh, from Kalamata. So we're, she's coming, and I'm going. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's chaotic, but it's the way we like it. It's the way we roll, as the kids say. Uh, got a great program for you lined up, uh, and it's always a pleasure to welcome, speaking of Lubbock, Texas, a gentleman who's done a little bit of cowboying himself, I'm guessing, from Zealand News Network, Victor Vigiani. How are you, my friend? Good to have you aboard, as always. Just great to be here. And uh, yes, you're right. We'll do a little bit of cowboying tonight, too, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, we, um, well, you just uh, got back from Washington not too long ago, right. maybe about a month and a half, two mm-hmm. months ago. And uh, you were down there, obviously, uh, observing. Mm-hmm. A very historically significant event, and that was the citizens' hearing on ET or UFO ET disclosure. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it since you've come back, but we're going to talk to two of the the principals involved in just a, just a few moments. But give people again just a very brief description what that citizen hearing was all about. Well, the the hearings themselves were about gathering forty uh, of the probably the most prominent witnesses, as they're called, um, experienced people who've been involved in the the UFO ET matter for a number of years, decades, most of them, and gathering these 40 people to present 
over 30 hours, 30 hours of testimony, uh, both from all the researchers and the military witnesses. So they gathered in panels of three and four and five individuals at a panel desk before uh, six former members of the United States Congress. One of them, by the way, was a U.S. senator. And this went on from about 9 o'clock in the morning every day from the Monday to the Friday until about 5 in the afternoon with a bit of a break, uh, of course, for lunch and smaller breaks during the day. But it was just an onslaught, a wave, a constant wave of the most incredible testimony that we could ever imagine being given about this UFO issue. And it completely convinced some very, very skeptical uh, former congressmen that there is something very, very strange going on in the sky. And by the Friday, they began to send out demands that this stuff be brought forward to the public. So, and tonight we're going to be listening to why and how that all happened with uh, our guests this evening, which we'll, you'll no doubt introduce. Uh, yeah, let's get right to it. First of all, no st- stranger to this program, of course, and uh, that would be Stephen Bassett, a political activist, leading advocate for open, transparent government. And since 1996, he's been working to end a government-imposed truth embargo on formal acknowledgement of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He's the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, which has sponsored many projects, including the Extraterrestrial Phenomena Political Action Committee, lobbyist registration with the U.S. Congress, Exopolitics World Network, uh, and, as we say, the driving force behind uh, this citizen hearing, which took place uh, at the end of April into early May. Stephen Bassett, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. It's good to be with you, Richard, Victor, as always. Now, this next gentleman... Uh, I guess uh, up until recently has been has been sort of a mystery man, and uh, we're going to learn uh, all about a Canadian uh, owner of an uh, owner operator of an oil exploration and development company who saw fit to get behind this citizen hearing, and uh, we'll find out why uh, he did that. And uh, so let's welcome Thomas Clearwater to the Conspiracy Show. Hello, Thomas. Welcome. Hello, Richard. Hello, Victor. It's good to be on air with you. And uh, Stephen Bassett uh, joining us as well. Hi, Tom. Awesome. Hello, Stephen. Stephen, uh, let me uh, start with you. You've yes. now had a couple of months uh, to, uh, to sort of, I guess, reflect upon, uh, probably, maybe you haven't had a lot of time to reflect knowing you, uh, not a lot of time for reflection, just go, go, go. But let's just uh, take a few moments to do that. Reflect on what has happened in those in the ensuing months since the end of the uh, the citizen hearing on disclosure well i say the ensuing months let's see what is it it's uh 23rd so it's now been a little over 6 weeks the event was intense and um um in, in the six months since, we have been focused on sort of regrouping um, and preparing to move forward. Uh, what we have to do next requires more funding. And so we didn't have the luxury of of being able to shoot the documentary, put on the event, which ended up costing quite a bit more than had been projected because it had never been done before. So we were you know, guessing. <laughs> we guessed low. Uh, and so we just did, we didn't have the funding to immediately just start firing off uh, uh, new projects. Uh, so uh, in the six months since, what's happened is uh, there's been some residual media coverage. Uh, there was a reasonable amount during the event itself, which is well 
you can see it on uh, citizenhearing.org. There's a whole section there, the media coverage. And I think there's more that we're going to be adding to that. There were a number of interviews of both witnesses, committee members, myself, um, that are out that were out there, and, and there's copies of that here and there. Primarily, the, the most significant thing that's happened in six, six weeks is that bits and pieces of this testimony has been doing what um, you, you see happen now in the modern age, and that is working its way throughout the global Internet. Um, uh, Ten-minute pieces here, five there, eight there, segments of it, uh, YouTube, uh, other websites just spreading, like water spreading out from an initial source. Not major virality, to be honest, uh, but nevertheless uh, out there, and that's fine. Saturating uh, the uh, the public awareness a little bit, which lays the groundwork for the next steps, which will come soon once we get our ducks lined up here. Uh, so there's been no major developments, at least not in the uh, the ET disclosure world. There have been major developments elsewhere that have tangential impact, uh, but we have many projects, and we'll certainly discuss those tonight. Could you recap the, uh, I guess the the communique that was issued by the six former members of Congress at the conclusion of the of the uh, the citizen hearing for those that, that, that weren't familiar yeah, with that? Sure. Uh, and for those of your listeners which are on the net right now, and I know many of them are, it's citizenhearing.org, which is still the host main website. If you go to the foundation link, you will see that communique. That's right there. Uh, in a nutshell, the, the members, the six former members of Congress came in with a relatively neutral to skeptical uh, position on this issue, by and large. I did not ask them what their position was, but in talking with them in general, I got a sense that that's where they were. They, they were not there because they had an intense interest in this subject. They were there because uh, they felt it was a worthy project and they wanted to be part of it. Um, and... They, they had a dramatic uh, experience, which significantly impacted their worldview, without question. And they all agreed to this. They all acknowledged this, that within a very short amount of time, I mean, within the first day, the testimony profoundly impacted them. And by the end of the week, their whole view on this was uh, significantly changed. Changed enough that they actually did two things, which I think was really wonderful. And one was they um, uh, signed a letter on behalf of two of the witnesses, John Burroughs and Jim Peniston, who were uh, uh, eyewitness, uh, first-hand eyewitnesses to the Bettwaters Rendlesham Forest case, uh, where a craft came down uh, over several nights and was interacted with humans, including them. Uh, there were effects and impacts on them which uh, affected their health, and, and they had been trying to deal with those, but they can't get their medical records because they, those records were classified. Uh, the members of Congress, uh, former members, signed a letter to the Veterans Administration asking and demanding those, those, those files be released to them. Uh, that was very powerful. And then uh, on uh, Friday, after a meeting that was held fr Thursday evening, Thursday right after the, we ended about 530, uh, a, a desire on the part of uh, uh, the members to take this issue somewhere, and, and they felt the United Nations was, 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 some, some, uh, uh, was a good, good way to go because it really has not been involved in this issue. It's been forced literally on the outside. Uh, 
primarily by the, by its principal uh, you know, uh, funders, the U.S. and others, they just don't want it involved, to approach it and to approach the General Assembly. And so they signed a communique that was put together, written by Mike Ravel, and then uh, edited a little bit by myself and, and um, uh, Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, uh, and, and with some help from the other members, including Carolyn Kilpatrick, uh, calling on, uh, in this case, the Citizen Hearing Foundation, which we're setting up right now, a nonprofit 501c3, to raise funds to to orchestrate a a uh, uh, a multiple, you know, a joint effort on the part of uh, uh, several countries, ideally around six to put a resolution before the U.N. General Assembly calling for a world conference. This would be backed and funded by the U.N. Uh, this would be unprecedented. Um, and the General Assembly is not the Security Council, and uh, anything could be introduced by any member, any member nation. has to come through a member nation, an ambassador. Uh, so this is a project we're going to pursue, and we're going to move to raise funds. Uh, for the Citizen Hearing Foundation uh, to not only do that, but hold another citizen hearing. So this communique is essentially a call to to put this issue into the United Nations General Assembly on the basis of calling for a world conference backed by the UN to examine the evidence, seemingly indicating an extraterrestrial presence engaged in the human race. So that was, again, an example of a proactive measure on their part. And I think the most notable thing I could add, and I'll conclude with this, is that I am quite confident that if the United States Congress, which has not held a hearing on this in 68, were to bring in uh, these witnesses, uh, or their equivalent, or and, and, and there are many more than just the 40 uh, that we, we brought into Washington, I assure you, that all of the members of the committees that they would testify before would undergo the same exact transformation, which I think the the managers of this issue well know, which is why uh, on every effort, and there have been a number to get congressional hearings on the ET issue in Congress, have all been blocked over the last 30 years. There's at least three of them that I know personally about. All right, Stephen. I think there have been some others. They we'll, simply won't let it happen because they know exactly what would happen. These witnesses would testify. We'll and take the it. embargo would be over. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll find out what the owner-operator of an oil exploration and development company here in Canada has to do with UFO ET disclosure. Victor Vigiani joins me in studio from Zeland News Network, Stephen Bassett from the Paradigm Research Group, and coming up, Thomas Clearwater here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network joins me in studio from April 29th to May 3rd, 2013. Uh, uh, Stephen Bassett's Paradigm Research Group uh, produced its most ambitious project, the Citizen Hearing on Disclosure. Forty witnesses from ten countries brought to the National Press Club in Washington. Researchers, activists, military agency persons of high rank and station testified for 30 hours over five days before six former members of the U.S. Congress regarding events and evidence supporting the extraterrestrial explanation for a range of unexplained Phenomena and joining Stephen Bassett uh, with us tonight is the, uh, I guess, the Canadian connection, uh, one of the Canadian connections to the citizen hearing, Thomas Clearwater. Uh, Thomas, welcome again. Let me ask you, what does the owner operator of an oil exploration and development company have to do with the UFO ET issue? Well, that's a, that's an awesome question. Uh, let me let me before I answer it, let me first convey my gratefulness for. Uh, everything that Stephen has done, he's um, he's the guy in the trenches here, and this this kind of work is is no simple matter. It's uh, it's it's very complex, and 
and requires uh, an incredible dedication, which Stephen has given. Um, uh, your question, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, it's, it's essentially like asking to sum up a lifetime. Um, but let me try to approach it this way. There's a, there's a line in the, uh, in the movie The Matrix, which um, I think it was uh, Morpheus asking or talking to Neo saying, listen, you know, it's like this, this dimension, this plane of existence, there's just something that just doesn't fit right. It's, it's uh, something wrong. And, and, and that was essentially my life. And uh, I, I grew up within that feeling of, of wondering, you know, this, uh, the, the, the whole thing, the whole panoply of my life here, including what I'm taught, etc. None of it really makes that much sense to me. <clears throat> So I set out and uh, wanted to uh, find out what the heck this place is about. And uh, that led me through all sorts of uh, turns and courses and pathways. And eventually I rose into this ET issue. And uh, it, w it wasn't until I did that that, that uh, uh, all, the, uh, all, all the markers started appearing on the horizon and the dots started um, being connected. Stephen, perhaps I could get you to explain what Thomas Clearwater's contribution um, is to the citizen hearing uh, and beyond. Well, it's real simple. Uh, the you know the, the the disclosure advocacy movement, which is a political advocacy movement, social movement. It's a truth movement. It, I think it's a justice movement. is is one of the most important in all of history, if not the most important. But it is an issue unlike any other, and it has been subjected to a highly uh, orchestrated, heavily funded campaign of disruption, which we call, I, I call the truth embargo. Some used to call the UFO cover-up. I don't like that term. For six and a half decades, billions were spent on it. And for that reason and others, it is the most underfunded major activist movement in all of history. The amount of money that has been put into the truth uh, effort to get the truth on this issue since '47 is so small, it's really almost amusing. Um, people just can't step out from under the truth embargo and and step up and say, "Look, you know, I think this we need to do this, and here's some funds." I mean, if you want to save the whales, let me tell you, you, you can find people all over who want to write checks. And so I came up with the idea for the citizen hearing, which I knew as early as 2001 was, would, would be very, very powerful. I was quite certain that it would be every bit as strong as it turned out to be. might not have been the best time to do it in 2001, to be, to be sure, but certainly that's when the idea came up. And, and for 13 years, I tried to get it funded, couldn't do it. it just couldn't get the funding for it uh, until I was contacted by Tom. And he made possible the funding for this because we had put together a film production deal uh, so that the hearing would be part of the creation of a documentary, which will be called Truth Embargo. And we created a standard film production deal. It's not a grant. Um, and his funds will be returned, uh, plus additional monies. It's, it's an extremely favorable and very generous deal to us, but it is not too far to the norm for a standard film production deal. That's the way we did it. Uh, and as it happened, it was a Canadian. Uh, we could not get anybody in the U.S. to fund this issue. And I think there's a reason for that. And, and that is that the truth embargo was heavily, heavily pr pr pursued and supported in the United States. The United States allies 
went along with the truth embargo. I mean, Canada has been in step with the U.S. on this, as has Britain, as has Germany and France, and I will even say in Japan, and the other uh, post-World War II allies of the United States. But the embargo wasn't pursued as aggressively or as intently as it was here for obvious reasons. And so uh, it's also the case that I think people in Canada are a little less afraid of their government. They have a little more trust in their government. They feel a little freer. They don't feel as intimidated. And so it is not an accident that I think a Canadian was the person who stepped forward to fund this. And without Tom, there is no citizen hearing. There would be no documentary. Uh, there, there would be no Citizen Hearing Foundation. All of this is spreading out from this initial support that he provided. Um, and that is, it's, it's as pure and simple as that. Uh, but the question now remains, is, is, is this enough? I mean, can we now do everything we have to do? No. I mean, we had enough funding to, to, to do the basic documentary and put on the hearing, which ended up costing far more than we expected. But we have multiple projects ready to go with right now. We need more Thomas Clearwaters. In other words, you know, gee, Tom is, is, has done what he can do, but he can't shoulder this, this advocacy revolution on his own. Where are the other individuals? And there are huge numbers of candidates who, who, who outwardly profess to be for open, transparent government, for honest government, for truth in government and even for acknowledgement of the ET presence. All right, let me get uh, Victor Vigiani to weigh in here. Yeah, I, actually what I want to do is uh, maybe direct something to Tom. Um, th- this whole idea of, of a reality collapsing on you and, and you kind of um, be- becoming attached to a different realm, a different reality, and seeing our planet unfold in a, in a way that really didn't sit well with you. Uh, wh- what made the transition for you to you know, make that telephone call to Steve and to, and to really kind of uh, show the necessity and the rightness of, of what needed to be done? And put your money where your mouth is, too. Well, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and action is, uh, for me, uh, uh, a spiritual path that um, when I see something that's true, I follow it, and I follow it up with action. And uh, so, you know, what made me transition was was merely the force of the information itself. And if I could, um, you know, perhaps give this as a as an analogy, the and I know there's uh, listeners out there who aren't on this particular wavelength that I'm on or that Stephen's on, etc. But let me put it this way, assuming that ETs exist, this process of um, rising into that understanding is is like coming from the bottom of the ocean where it's dark. And slowly, slowly, the light starts turning on. It gets lighter and lighter. And there comes a point, it's a binary point, where you breach the surface. That point I reached, oh, maybe a year year ago, approximately, maybe a year and a half. And that was it. So it was the force of the information and the reality that what what kind of future uh, this will provide us it's a beautiful future we're looking into. It's a future where poverty is eliminated, where we are no longer uh, at each other's necks in warfare and all of that. It's lovely, lovely future. So that's, you know, if there is anything I want to put my efforts and my commitment and my money towards, it's something like that. Can I, uh, I mean, here's the elephant in the room, and, and uh, I mean, you're the owner-operator of an mm-hmm. oil and gas exploration company, and yet so much of 
you know, what's involved with the UFO ET issue, obviously, is the potential for free energy. Absolutely. Ex- explain the – I mean, here's a guy coming from the oil company who's getting behind this. Explain the dichotomy and what's going through your mind. Well, there's – yeah, I hear you. There's nothing lost in, in going into free energy because free energy means that everybody wins. And it means that I win. It means that my neighbors win. It means that everybody around the world wins. So, um, yeah, there's a resistance of, of people who are uh, in industries uh, and locked into certain ways of living, etc. Yeah, I, I sense that resistance. For me, again, it's, um, the reality is that, is that we are looking into a kind of uh, scientific and technical future, including with such things as free energy. Uh, that uh, that make life a, um, a a a much more beautiful beautiful experience. Let, let's go back just for a second to uh, what Steve alluded to earlier. Maybe a comment from Tom, and then maybe even Steve too. This idea of yourself as a, as a Canadian, Tom, making this move, and then putting that together with Steve's idea that there are lots of other people, both in the United States and possibly throughout the world. Um, but but focusing in on the on the Canadian experience, is there any chance that either with yourself or combined with Steve or other individuals? That this whole movement, um, in, in terms of how this thing gets funded, that some sort of collective could be developed uh, of like-minded people, people like yourself, who could stand up and say, yes, I want to be counted in on this too. What kind of influence could you have or other Canadians that are listening to our voice right now, our voices right now, that could stand up and say, yes, I want to be counted in on this. I want to come up from that darkness of the ocean and, and see that, that bright light um, at, at the end of that binary system. Um, how, how do you feel about that, Tom? And maybe Steve got a comment too. Sure. Well, you know, information has its own force. It's accumulative and it works regardless whether a person wants it to work. You know, if somebody walks up to you and says, your, your dog is dead. Uh, and if that's true, it's wow it's it's happening inside whether you like it or not so you know information is is its own driver you know back in the days when the printing press was created uh uh information turned the world apart changed it uh dramatically and and the, with the internet now um uh we are seeing uh, a, a vast series of changes where and I'll speak to your point more particularly now that where people just naturally gravitate together. They come together and gravitate toward relevant other people in relevant experiences where, uh, where they are drawn through various uh, means uh, of being able to contribute to each other. Uh, and, and what is needed for people to be able to do that is some starting point. And uh, I feel uh, honored to have been played some role, any role at all, in, in providing some sort of starting point for people to actually uh, find ways and means in that natural, evolving way, the way of uh, evolution itself is to um, uh, where various higher forms of order are created out of uh, lower forms. Stephen, did you want to did you want to comment? Oh yeah. Um, well, first of all, Tom is, is is leading by example. I mean, he, he's showing people look what was possible because I made some funds available. Now, what else could be possible if more funds were available? But there's a much larger point here. The the fundamental 
goal of the truth embargo, given that it was being operated in a, in a country that was still a, a representative republic, a democracy uh, that was not uh, operating like, say, a Soviet Union, for instance, uh, was to contain this issue uh, through a massive propaganda campaign and manipulation of, of multiple institutions so that over a period of what is now 65 years, the schools wouldn't teach it. The media would not really investigate it, might write stories, but they wouldn't investigate. The Congress wouldn't engage it or hold hearings. The executive wouldn't talk about it. And of equal importance, that the granting institutions, of which there are thousands, and, and also individual philanthropists, of which there are thousands, would be uh, you know, afraid to uh, or concerned about funding it. Keep the money out, keep the education out, keep the Congress out. And they succeeded, except that the truth embargo really – kind of the formal uh, input of new energy into it ends around 2000 and it's been really been running on its own momentum for the last 10 years and a substantial quantity of individuals within government within military within intelligence community I think actually favor disclosure now and so there is a very key point here that happened on May, May um, April 29 to May 3 one a gentleman put forward a substantial amount of money to make this happen. He's not being harassed. He's not being bothered. He's just fine. There were 40 witnesses there that testified in front of cameras, and their, their testimony is going to be spread all over the world. They're not being bothered. They're not being harassed. They're just fine. And so the 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 only thing, it's, it's kind of the residual effects of this truth embargo that's lingering in people's minds, like, oh, somebody will tell a joke, or somebody will make fun of me if I say anything, or if I put some money in this. Uh, you know, Lawrence Rockefeller put money in this. Robert Bigelow, a billionaire, put money in this. On the March 31st show on Coast to Coast on, with, uh, with uh, George Annapolis host, you can find this on, on the Coast to Coast AM website in the archives, Robert Bigelow, a billionaire, stated three times that the ET presence is real. I'm not kidding. Read, listen to it. He said it was real. He even said he favored uh, what will we'll be called disclosure. He called uh, confirmation, which is simply the acknowledgement of the ET presence. He's, he becomes the richest man to ever do that. Okay, fine. So the point is, look, a disclosure is inevitable, but there's a lot of problems in the world right now. And every day the disclosure is delayed, those problems are not are going to get worse, and we're still stuck in the pre-disclosure world, the old paradigm world, based upon a kind of thinking and approach to human affairs, which doesn't work anymore. And so we need disclosure now, not you know eventually. And so we can have it now if we get the support necessary to do the things we know we can do, we're ready to do, and put so much pressure on, on multiple governments that it has to happen. All right, let me jump in here, Stephen. We'll take a time out, come back. Victor yeah. Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. Thomas Clearwater, Stephen Bassett on the line as we discuss the citizen hearing on UFO disclosure. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Welcome back. We're talking UFO disclosure. Victor Vigiani, the uh, executive director of Zealand News Network, joins us in studio on the phone. Stephen Bassett, the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group and the driving one of the driving forces, of course, behind the recent citizen hearing on UFO disclosure. And um, a, a man who, I guess, 
decided to put his, uh, you know, his money where his mouth is and get behind this and, and, and was responsible for funding this citizen hearing, Thomas Clearwater, owner-operator of an oil exploration and development company here in Canada. Uh, let's bring it back to the actual hearing. Uh, if I could get from each of you some highlights. Let's start with Victor. Uh, if you could tell me what you think was a pivotal moment in the hearing, whether it was a, the testimony of a particular witness, the reaction of one of the uh, the, the congressmen uh, or women, t- give us a highlight, if you could. I'll get that from each of you. Victor. Oh. Well, I can, I can say two things about that. On, on the very first day, I had uh, the privilege of sitting and having lunch with one of the congressmen, uh, Merrill Cook. And uh, on that day, it, it was sort of uh, a couple of hours into the hearing. And um, he had heard a very small portion of what was going on. And I got a sense from him that... Um, he was extremely reticent about exposing his internal feelings about what was going on and how skeptical he was. And he, he didn't sort of go overboard with the skepticism, but he definitely was playing uh, his hand very, very close to the vest. And I could sense that there was some reticence and even kind of accepting anything that was going on. Um, and then uh, later on in the week, listening to the same man, go through this transformation of saying we have to get those files opened. He said that, I think, on the Thursday or the Friday. I'm not sure which day it was. So this man made a complete 180-degree turnaround on his uh, his belief system about all of this. It sort of um, it got inside of him. So that was one thing that impressed me. And the other part of it was a testimony by Linda Moulton Howe, one of our most, um, I guess, prodigious uh, researchers, where she experienced, uh, rather she explained, how a witness experienced an absolutely dramatic encounter with a telepathic uh, uh, extraterrestrial. And uh, listening to the telepathic messages that were coming from this, uh, this ET in a room, I don't want to go into all little details, but this man described it as trying to watch four, five, six, seven different movies all at once going on in your head. I sat and listened to that, and I was just absolutely gobsmacked by it. Those are the, the two things that hit me really hard. Stephen Bassett, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you know, much of this testimony, I'm guessing you've heard maybe all of it before, but if you could sort of separate yourself from, you know, being the organizer of this, uh, of this event and being, a, you know, an, an advocate and talk to me about things that impacted on you emotionally, psychologically, as you're sitting and listening to this as well. The testimony. Well, several things. One, the most important testimony, in my view, of the entire hearing was the testimony of Captain Robert Salas, Captain David Shindelli, Captain uh, Bruce Fenstermacher, and Sergeant David Scott. D, they all testified, and there, there are many others that have done the same, to incidents where these uh, craft, almost certainly containing extraterrestrials, came down and tampered with our nuclear weapons on numerous occasions. We have, we have indications that this has happened in other countries as well, obviously the Soviet Union. Uh, they all had national. They all had top security clearances to work on a SAC nuclear base. I mean, uh, Bob Salas was essentially the, the the guy in charge of the, the silo down below. This is where the two guys with the keys can turn the keys and begin nuclear war. Uh, when people like that are testifying to these kinds of events, theoretically, every journalist working uh, national defense should be at the Pentagon the next day. Uh, they should be at the White House the next day. Uh, now, they've been talking about this for the last 10 years, uh, though a new witness or two comes forward every uh, five or six months. Uh, but once again, we were able to put that testimony out, but in this even more powerful setting. And of course, it's on tape. And that is, uh, to me, the most important testimony that may yet still light a fire under an editor somewhere in that town. 
who will actually get in the business of real journalism and say, if this isn't national security, what is? The second thing note, notable, and this is very satisfying to me. Let me just get you to hold on to that. We'll, uh, we'll take a time yeah. out. We'll come back. You're Stephen great. Bassett will uh, give us some more highlights from the testimony of the citizen hearing. And Thomas Clearwater will also share some of his favorite moments or what he feels the most poignant moments from the citizen hearing as we discuss UFO disclosure. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network here on The Conspiracy Show. Stephen Bassett on the line, a political activist, a leading advocate for open, transparent government, and uh, since '96, been working to end a government-imposed truth embargo, embargo regarding the UFO ET issue, uh, organizer of the uh, citizen hearing, which took place at the end of April on this very subject, and uh, sharing some of the, uh, the highlights of the more than 40 hours of testimony from some 30 witnesses uh, on the UFO ET issue. Oh, so you had one more that you wanted to share, and then we'll move on to Thomas Clearwater. Uh, yeah, the uh, New York Daily News, which is kind of a hybrid between a straight daily paper and a tabloid, like many of the papers in England, sent a reporter down the very first day, did an awful, awful hit piece, right, just as bad as it gets. They got so much grief from from the Internet and from comments on their websites that he was sent back and did a straight piece at the end of the week. That was pretty cool. Some of the most emotional testimony came from Jeffrey Torres, the son of Milton Torres. Uh, his father is now bedridden and unable to speak. Uh, and he testified on his behalf regarding uh, Milton Torres's uh, being ordered to shoot down an aircraft carrier size UFO in 1957 over Britain in a fog. Um, and also the testimony of, of, of Denise Marcel and Jesse Marcel III, who testified along with their father, Jesse Marcel uh, Jr., um, as regards not only Jesse Marcel Jr.'s uh, experience since he came forward to back up his father, but also the experience of their grandfather. These are emotional moments for me. Uh, of course, the Marcells were uh, on the ground during uh, the Roswell uh, UFO uh, incident uh, when two flying disks crashed uh, near Corona. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesse Marcel Jr. was, and then his children, of course, uh, uh, were direct witness to what he went through and his and, 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 and how he dealt with, you know, the fact that the Air Force essentially called them all liars. I mean, his father and Jesse Marcel Jr., and these are all exemplary people. I mean, Jesse Marcel served in the military in multiple capacities as a, as, a, as a medical officer and injured himself very late in life in Iraq. I mean, these are just super quality people, and they're being called liars by the Air Force. It's, it's just another reason why the truth embargo is a stain now and not, not, a, not a justifiable policy. All right, Thomas Clearwater, if you could share a, a, a poignant moment or two from the hearing. Yeah, Richard, you know, it was for me, the, uh, the panel members' final submissions, um, uh, that was decision time. You know, here we had, a, here we had panel members uh, in the public, in the public eye, with, uh, with many, many people watching, uh, having to now decide what are they going to say because that whatever they say is going to carry their, uh, their, the ultimate weight of, of what their experience was and were they going to be truthful to that experience if they were convinced by the evidence. And you could see them looking around and nervous and, yeah, I understand that. I know it's for me. You know, when I, when I first funded this, um, this operation, many people in my life uh, felt I, uh, you know, had fallen off some cliff somewhere, basically. You know, I was in some free fall. And, and you know, they were right about me being in free fall. But what they, what they didn't realize was that I had, I had, you know, dived into a rabbit hole. And given the interconnectedness of everything and the force of information and how it moves, well, uh, you know, there's a rope that will eventually tighten around each person's ankles and whoa, in, the, in they'll come with me. Um, 
the panel members themselves uh, jumped into that rabbit hole. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Victor. Actually, the, the what I want to get to is, is this whole idea of um, the forces that are at work um, that, that, that mitigate against all of this. And there's been significant damage uh, done by the silence of government to the, uh, to the human psyche uh, by the perpetrators of the, of the truth embargo. And one of them is fear, you know, the fear of knowing that something is real and virtually choking off that reality from, from the public. Uh, I'd like to get your idea, Tom, about what the role of the media will be to transform itself uh, and, and play a role in accomplishing uh, sort of the, the freedom of flow of information. What will transform this, this entity called the media to bring this stuff forward? Well, the media is going to, they're going to lose their market share because they're basically becoming irrelevant. If, if, they, don't, if they don't begin in a, in a much more uh, clarified way to give what, uh, what is actually true in terms of you know the the, the journalistic uh, including investigative angle um, they'll simply lose completely lose market share to people who will find their information sources elsewhere people fundamentally want to know what's true you know ask any person whether they like being lied to they don't they can't stand it it's one of the worst information is that important to every person and to their way of being and their way of functioning in this world. So, so the, uh, the media, um, uh, you know, if they want to get in on, on, on the ground level, um, you know, strike when the, when the iron is hot and, 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 uh, and uh, lead the way. But otherwise, you know, you'll be moved out of the way in any event because the Internet is, is, is just too powerful. So, so is there a specific thing that you could say to some of the journalists that I know are listening to tonight, all this, of this conversation? If you were sitting beside one right now or on a park bench somewhere with uh, sort of, you know, their ear completely open, uh, what would you say to, to any individual journalist who has this potential to increase their own newspaper's market share or at least advance this cause in a way that's significant to the human race? Right. I would say take that step. Really, you know, it's, uh, Stephen Greer, who is involved in, in disclosure, has often said the, the factor missing from people's lives is this factor called moral courage. And really that what he's talking about there is, is the courage to actually take a step out of the herd and be accountable and truthful for what you experience, receive, etc. So uh, that's basically in a nutshell what I would say. Take the step. Be courageous. Be yourself. Be honest. Be honest. Quit the lying. Give people the truth, and you will see a beautiful future arise. Anyways, you can go ahead now. Uh, Stephen, the, the six uh, congressmen and women who are on this panel, what, I mean, have they been, you, I mean, you mentioned that they've been obviously, you know, a, a, changed by this by hearing this testimony mm-hmm. but i mean do they have an assignment in their minds now what do they what do they do from, that's a development uh they weren't they weren't being recruited to become essentially part of a uh, you know activist movement per se that's a decision they'll make but uh they did their job they did it well and you may see them involved down the line a little bit but uh i'm, I'm not you know i'm gonna let them make that call First, we've got to get our ducks lined up. We've got to get the bills paid. We've got to get the foundation launched. There's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be put in place. And we'll see. 
but there are hundreds of other former members of Congress. Uh, they, again, are an example. Um, how many others are, you know, I'm hoping that others will look at what happened there and go, wait a minute. You know, they're, they're fine. They, they haven't been, you know, they, they can still have lunch in Washington, D.C. They've, they've actually generated a lot, of, a lot of positive responses. I mean, they've received a tremendous amount of positive responses and emails and so forth. Believe me, they have. So we'll see. There's so much to do. Uh, for, you know, let me just give you an idea of what's underway. One, uh, we've, we've launched a, a modest uh, crowdfunding on citizenhearing.org to provide some funds so that we can put together a Blu-ray and DVD box sets of this, this hearing. And we're, and we're not talking a movie. Here. We're talking 30 hours of testimony that has to be edited and developed. Uh, we're going to launch a uh, crowdfunding for the, for the Truth Embargo movie. And, and, and there is a flash site up now at truthembargomovie.com. That will go up in due course. We'll have the website for the Citizen Hearing Foundation up soon. We'll start a crowdfunding on that to try to get that in uh, with two goals, one to get a resolution into the United Nations and also to do another citizen hearing. Um, I'm going to launch a webcast pretty soon. Basically, it will be called uh, Disclosure Report at uh, secrecyreform.org. It will be a subscription webcast at least once a month, probably twice a month. We'll get into a lot of the, we'll get in in depth to the questions you just asked, and people will be able to ask questions of me uh, in real time. Something they really can't do on these interviews, though I've done a lot of them, and I'll continue to do them, of course. Um, th this is, and then of course we we have got to finish up the documentary itself, and we've got to find distribution for it, multiple venues, uh, to complete the production deal. So we have a tremendous amount of work ahead. But um, uh, let me t let me tell you, we, we have an opportunity here. There's so much going on. There is a revolution building out there where the millennials uh, or the the uh, global uh, generation, the globalists that uh, John Zogby has just wrote about in his book, uh, the New Globals, uh, are rebelling against the old paradigm. Uh, Snowden, Assange, Manning, all of these. These are all millennials. They 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 they, they don't think like the old the old group. They don't think like the baby boomers. They don't have the same values. They're more, more globalist. They're more multicultural, and they hate the secrecy, and they are really taking some very powerful measures against it. And of course, the old the empire is striking back and trying to destroy them, trying to put them in jail for life. This is only the beginning of a massive confrontation between those born between 1980 and 1995 and those born between 1945 and 1960. It, and, and the internet, is, of course, is the driving you know, engine in all of this. Massive changes afoot. All that's going to happen, but my focus and the focus of our team is disclosure. In the midst of all this, the greatest secret in history is still being withheld. If that secret is finally open, not only will we have a change, I think, in uh, a sea change in our geopolitical realities, we may also be able to get access to the ET technology, which is the hard, solid potential um, impact that Absolutely. could alter the lives of Absolutely. everybody very quickly. I think Victor wanted one more. Continue to operate given the current technology for energy propulsion that we have. We are going to fail, and they have got that technology in black laboratories. It's time we got access to it in an appropriate way, and we're not going to get to that tech until the AET presence is so, acknowledged. So, Tom, one last word mm -hmm. from you. There's a huge momentum that I can feel. It's it's, it's tangible, it's palpable. Um, how do you characterize this momentum, and where do you see it going? I mean, Stephen just explained some really great stuff about energy, etc. How do you internalize the momentum that, that, that seems to be building, that you've helped build, 
going forward in all of this? We've got, we've got about, about a minute and a half, just to let you know. Okay, yeah, well, the, uh, the momentum is actually, it's an accelerating momentum. So it actually forms a parabola. It's just like what the financial system is facing it. And yet uh, the financial system will come to a different end than this momentum that you're talking about, which is going to explode into a beautiful future, like I've said. Um, uh, information, like I said, is cumulative, and, and, and you don't forget it. It goes into the data bank. And um, once uh, enough people reach it, once there's a critical threshold reached, uh, you'll see a massive change in society from, uh, from, from this new understanding, just basically automatically filtering out into people's lives, into the structures, institutions, uh, into the ways of uh, living, into laws, etc. So uh, it's, and, it, and it's, it can't be stopped. Um, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's happening of necessity. It's like trying to, you know, stop the light. You can't stop the light. Vic, uh, Tom, I've got one quick question for Thomas, and, and uh, we've got a very little time here. But Thomas, I mean, now you, you've dived right in now with both feet. What, do you, mm. How do you go back to the oil and ex, oil exploration business? Or I mean, how do you? Where do you go from here? What do you do? I mean, I know you're very involved, obviously, in, in getting this documentary uh, put together and so forth. But I mean, you've crossed the, the Rubicon, haven't you? Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, I'm happy not to go back. Uh, you know, I, I will continue and provide for my life practically. Uh, that's of, co- of course for sure, and and I'm grateful for what has been given to me uh, in regards to uh, the money that I was able to uh, afford to give into this process, uh, etc. So um, my future is is looking. I'm, I'm open into a future that I am going to play a role in at an information level. Uh, and, um, and, and yeah, we'll just see what comes. The, the changes are just so massive. It's like, it's like walking through a waterfall. You don't know what's on the other side. But for me, I know it's, it's going to be a fantastic, uh, different life. Thomas Clearwater, thank you so much for your time. Stephen Bassett, always a delight to have you. Thank you both, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Victor. Stephen, you're awesome, man. Thanks, Tom. We'll be in touch. Victor okay. Vigiani, thank you, as always. Thomas Clearwater, uh, Stephen Bassett, and Victor Vigiani. Hey, when, when you see uh, the path to truth, follow it. And uh, when you see an injustice, fight it. Uh, but most importantly, don't be afraid. Welcome aboard. And also welcome aboard uh, to the Conspiracy Show family to KLVT AM 1230 Lubbock, Texas, our newest affiliate. Uh, they'll be uh, broadcasting the program starting in early July. So we'll add that to our growing list of affiliates as the tentacles of the conspiracy show spread out across North America and perhaps into your community soon. Uh, Just looking at uh, some of the great that we've posted uh, on the In the News section on um, uh, richardserrett.com, which of course is your portal to the Conspiracy Show radio program, richardserrett.com. The um, the one that I've been uh, just sort of reading uh, over and over again is this, Create Your Own Backyard Pharmacy. Uh, Check that out. You know, uh, of course, many people have... uh, Really, I can I safely say an, an over reliance on on pharmaceuticals. I know people that are taking you know thirty, forty different medications, and some of them are conflicting with each other. And they they take them to the pharmacy, and they say, you know, is should I be taking these? And and the pharmacies the pharmacist sifts, sifts through them and say, well, that is not good because you're taking this, and it's it's running people's lives. They spend all day 
all, you know, hours and hours just trying to manage their medications. And if there's a way that you can toss some of those out and just grow them in the garden, I mean, that's, that's the way we used to medicate, right? They were plant-based medicines. Now they're all synthetics. So if, if there's a way we can get back to the garden, let's do it. Anyway, that's, that's just one of the stories that we've posted uh, on the In the News section along with uh, John Hopkins scientist blasting the Centers for Disease Control for pushing the flu shot. That's a great story as well. In the news section, richardserrett.com. Hey, just look who walked in. Our good friend from Zealand News Network, the executive director no less, Victor Vigiani. How are you? I am just fine. I am just fine. I'm a little and, slow on that mic. Uh, yeah, that yeah, mic that, button's way over here. Sorry about that. It's like hitting a cymbal and a <laughs> faraway drum set. Yeah. You are a drummer. That's right. Yeah, I know the feeling. Uh, your your words about the pharmaceuticals. My goodness, it's just amazing. I, I, you watch sometimes on TV, and you 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 see the advertisement, and then the, the caveats at the end. Yes, may, may cause death, and you know, or whatever. You know, it's just it's amazing how um, the, the pharmaceutical companies use those last few seconds of the commercial to. Yeah, they're two minutes long now, and the last ninety seconds are the side effects. Exactly, and it's very devastating to to people that are they feel they have to do it, Richard. They feel they have to consume these things in order to, uh, but they really don't. But that's another story altogether. Well, uh, but it's it's all sort of interrelated, I suspect. I mean, when you when you come into this room, we talk about UFOs and ET uh, uh, disclosure and. Uh, Somehow, you know, and a lot of that is wrapped up in free energy course, and, yeah. and uh, yeah. advanced technology. Uh, but perhaps, you know, the uh, health health concerns are also wrapped up in that. And pharmaceuticals. Well, uh, you know what it is. It's I'm convinced that it's part of the systemic lie that that people are are uh, that are that people are living every single day. It's just something that they take for granted. Their whole lives are consumed by this, this non-reality that we're involved in. You know, take this kind of medicine, take this flu shot, uh, believe in this politician because he can bring nirvana to you. Meanwhile, once they get into office, it's just a proffering another set of lies about the, the reality that that politician wants to bring, uh, you know, to, to, to his constituents. It's all, you know what, There's, they're all interconnected. I see very, very little difference between the pharmaceutical companies and the, the UFO issue and free energy and global warming or glo- whether it's all interconnected. There's no real boundary. But then I think media is teaching us that there are boundaries between those things and you shall not cross those boundaries. And that's part of the systemic the lie system that we're all involved in, which is a very, very unfortunate part of our existence. Well, recently you and I were talking to uh, Stephen Bassett, the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, and uh, Thomas Clearwater. Uh, those two gentlemen are really the driving forces be- be behind the recent citizen hearing on UFO ET disclosure. Mm-hmm. We just revealed on the program Thomas Clearwater was sort of the deep pockets behind this. Here's a Canadian oil man who stepped out. Uh, and put his money where his mouth is, and funded this hearing and uh, the ensuing documentary project. Um, but, you know, based on what we're talking about now, I, I think we would agree what we need are disclosure movements on, on many different fronts, not only on, on, uh, on uh, pharmaceuticals, but also, you know, the financial systems that are crumbling before our eyes, uh, and, of course, the UFOET issue. And to that end, uh, one of the, the key witnesses, in fact, uh, uh, Stephen Bassett recently said that that it was the 
the testimony of this individual we're about to welcome onto the program that he thought was one of the most poignant, powerful moments in the, um, the some 30 hours of, of eyewitness testimony at the citizen hearing. And I speak, of course, as a, uh, a former U.S. Air Force captain um, who talked about a UFO incident at Melmstrom Air Force Base back in March of 1967 where it was reported that 16 nuclear missiles became non-operational at two different launch facilities immediately after guards saw UFOs hovering above. And with that said, we welcome to The Conspiracy Show Captain Robert L. Salas. Hello, Robert. Welcome. Hello, Victor. Hello, Richard. Can you hear me okay? We can. It's great to have you on the, uh, on the program. Uh, I gave sort of a thumbnail sketch uh, of uh, the events in March of 67 at Malmstrom. Uh, but if I could just get you to, to flesh that out a little bit, uh, just spend a few moments uh, talking about where you were, what happened uh, in March of 1967 at Malmstrom Air Force Base. Sure, yeah. I was uh, first lieutenant in March of 67, uh, assigned to a missile crew of two. Uh, two of us, uh, my commander was uh, Fred Mywald, um, Later retired as a full colonel, um, but um, in uh, on March 24th, uh, we were on duty at uh, what's called Oscar Flight. Uh, we had control of 10 nuclear missiles, um, and we had all the uh, controls underground uh, in a capsule, a concrete capsule. And uh, we had about six or so security guards upstairs upstairs. Uh, uh, we were about 60 feet underground, so we had no way of knowing uh, or seeing topside. Uh, we just had communications uh, directly with the guards. Uh, first, uh, they reported some strange lights in the sky um, uh, sometime in the middle of the, uh, sometime in the evening. Uh, I was on duty. My commander was taking a rest break, and uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't pay much attention to it, although report sounded very strange that these lights were moving at fantastic speeds. Uh, these guys were saying these are not aircraft because, you know, they're very familiar with aircraft, uh, doing some very strange maneuvers. And um, I kind of hung up on that call. But then uh, about five minutes later, he calls back, and this guy is very frightened, and screaming into the phone, saying they're looking out at the front gate. They see a glowing red object about 40 feet in diameter, uh, uh, just hovering there, sitting there silently, uh, pulsating uh, red light. Scared to death. They had all their uh, weapons drawn, um, and they wanted me to tell them what to do next. I, I told them not to let anything inside the front gate, uh, and uh, then he had to go, and uh, so we hung up, and I was about to report these calls to my commander who was taking a rest break, but uh, before I could do that, the uh, uh, we got a lot of bells and whistles in the capsule, and the missiles went no-go, or they were disabled, shut down while this object was still up there. We lost all ten. Uh, originally, I had reported uh, we lost six because uh, my commander, Fred Mywald, when I first contacted me, he said, well, uh, he didn't know how many, and uh, he didn't think they had all gone, but... Uh, so originally, I, I, we kind of compromised. I said, well, maybe six of them. And I think that's where uh, Victor came up with that number 16. But it, it was later verified uh, by um, one Robert, uh, um, let's see, Robert Jameson, um, who was the maintenance 
guy that went out there and uh, and brought our missiles back online, uh, he said that all ten went down. And, and of course, that's what I had remembered all along. Um, so we did lose ten that evening, and uh, when it was re- reported to the base, the uh, command post told uh, Fred Mywell that uh, the same thing happened uh, previously, and that was the Echo flight incident. So, and uh, later on, we were able to get uh, the um, testimony of uh, Walter Fiegel, who was on duty at Echo flight, which is a Another flight similar to ours was about 40 miles away. And on March 16th of 67, he lost uh, all 10 of his weapons while UFOs were seen above the launch facilities by by maintenance personnel and by security guards. So uh, that's basically the story. The um, we've got testimony. We've got witness testimony from. Uh, Fiegel, Mywald, myself, um, and uh, Jameson, uh, man by the name of Arneson, who saw um, uh, Telex uh, stating that, yes, uh, UFOs were seen during the missile shutdown. So we've got quite a strong case. We've got documents, and um, I've recently done some more research. Um, we can talk about that a little later, but I've included that in my new book, uh, which I call unidentified. How does uh, one? Excuse me, Robert. Uh, yeah, ex- uh, yes. Tell me. Tell me a little bit more about uh, this new book, unidentified. You've just. It's just been published. Yeah, I just published it uh, about a month ago. Um, uh, what I've tried to do is uh, first I revisited the Malmstrom incident. I, I wrote the first book uh, along with James Klotz, my investigator. Uh, it's called Faded Giant. Um, and it talks about the basic incident, that um, there were some uh, errors in that, uh, minor errors, because we didn't have uh, complete, uh, we didn't have all the facts yet. But So I revisited the case and uh, also made the connection through um, other, other documents uh, about the cover-up that was going on by the Air Force uh, in collusion with the Condon Committee because the Condon investigation was ongoing uh, at the time of the incidents. And uh, I've I've now got evidence that shows that the Condon investigation was a a whitewash and there was a collusion between them and the Air Force. We're coming up on a break here shortly, but I I want to throw this question out to you and Mm -hmm. uh, we can at least begin this discussion. And that is, how does one fill out a report that 10 uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear uh, warheads, became non-operational after, you know, this UFO sighting. How does one write such a report? Where does that report end up? And and, um, you can explain when we come back, I guess, the fallout from that. Robert Salas, Captain Robert L. Salas, is with us uh, talking about a UFO incident in March of 1967 in which 10... Nuclear missiles under his watch became non-operational at Melmstrom Air Force Base in March of 67 uh, when UFOs were seen hovering just outside the gate, no less. And this was all testimony that he repeated before the six congressional or former congressional members at the citizen hearing 
uh, in late April, early May down in Washington. We'll come back and discuss further. Victor Vigiani remains in studio from Zeland News Network. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back. Uh, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network uh, joins us in studio. On the line is Captain Robert Salas. Uh, whose testimony was included in part of the 30 hours of testimony before the citizen hearing uh, back in late April, early May uh, in 1967, March of 67. Uh, Then Lieutenant Robert Salas uh, was in charge of the uh, nuclear missiles at Melmstrom Air Force Base and described to the the panel of uh, former congressmen how... Those 10 nuclear warheads became non-operational after UFOs were seen hovering around and over uh, the base. Uh, Robert, before the break, I was asking you how one fills out such a report. Uh, do, does one uh, just, you know, describe it the way it was, or do you have to be is – there, is there politics involved when you're writing out such a report? Were you mindful of how this might appear to your superiors? Uh, you know, this is an interesting question, um, Victor. Uh, actually, I didn't write any report. Uh, what I, I may have done, and it's been so long, but I, I, I probably kept a log of my conversation with uh, the security people upstairs and a log of the events. Um, uh, but when we were, we were ordered back, to the base immediately after we were relieved to uh, report to our squadron commander's office. And I, I certainly thought that he would want uh, us to write a report, a detailed report, of what had happened. Uh, but as we walked in, and um, my, my commander, squadron commander, uh, Colonel Eldridge, was, uh, uh, <laughs> what is a sheet? I, I asked him point blank what the hell was going on. Uh, what happened? I mean, it was just, uh, you know, waiting to hear him say, you know, this was just an Air Force exercise, just trying to test you guys, see how alert you were and all that. But uh, he was white as a sheet. He shook his head. He said, I, I have no idea what's going on. And and standing next to him was um, a man from AFOSI, Air Force Office of Special Investigation. And he had already prepared... Um, a statement for us to sign, and uh, this was a specific statement saying we would uh, never, ever speak about this incident to anyone and uh, talk about our incident specifically, and uh, and uh, which was a uh, surprise to me because we all already had a lot of top-secret clearances, uh, and of course, uh, you know, somebody told us not to say anything about something that was classified, which we sure wouldn't do it. But now he wanted us to sign this specifically, a non-disclosure statement, so we both signed it. Uh, so I was never supposed to talk about this. Uh, but they, they were not interested in us writing a, a definitive report on it, uh, and that's really the extent of our conversation with our squadron commander on this issue. And when we left that office, uh, I, we couldn't even talk to um, uh, some of the men uh, who had been out there, um, the security guards, in fact, they called me the next day, um, one of them, and begged me, just begged me to come and see them uh, and talk to talk about this because they they were just um, dumbfounded, frightened. Uh, they, they wanted some kind of an explanation, which of course I couldn't give them. 
but I had to turn them down. That kills me to this day. You know, it's that's an amazing emotional story that you're, that you're telling. You know, I, I feel that you know we're, we're all sort of part of you know what we're doing here is we're we're recreating history in one way or another. And my feeling, Robert, is that um, you are in fact a inter- uh, really important part of that reconstruction of history. Uh, you know, the idea that the United States Air Force would trust you guys with all of these missiles and the national security of, of, of that responsibility is just absolutely massive. And then on the other side of their of their of their of their tongue, I guess is the, is the best way to put it. They throw you under the bus. Um, what emotional impact does that have on you? Well, of course, um, uh, at that time, when, when I signed that non-disclosure statement, of course, I uh, I said, well, uh, you know, they, they must know something. I don't know. Uh, I just have to follow orders. I, I was considered myself a, a career man, you know, a professional officer, and, and uh, so I was just going to keep that secret. Uh, uh, what, what I... When I saw, in 1994, by the way, I um, picked up this book called Above Top Secret. I hadn't talked about this incident. Uh, I got out of the service in 1971. I got an honorable discharge and just resigned because of the Vietnam War. But in 1994, I picked up this book, Above Top Secret, by Timothy Good. And uh, on page 301 of that book, it says... uh, uh, a little paragraph, short paragraph, saying that uh, in 1967 these missiles were shut down during the UFO sighting, uh, and that was it. And so I kind of got excited. Uh, I thought, gee, maybe the Air Force declassified this. Uh, we sent a request under the Freedom of Information Act, and the Air Force wrote back and said, well, it's still classified, but the, because it's been so long, we've got to declassify the Echo Flight. And that, I thought that was my incident at the time because it described it so well. Uh, so when they started sending documents back, that, that's when I decided to go full, uh, come forward and publicly start speaking about this incident as a UFO event. Uh, when I requested those documents, by the way, I didn't say anything about UFOs. Of course, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But, um, yeah, um, I was determined to uh, get this out. I felt responsible uh, to talk uh, about this as a UFO event because that's exactly what it was. Um, uh, there were many, many witnesses to the, to the object, uh, and um, it's been supported uh, by many other people, like Ray Fowler, for example, who was working at Sylvania. By the way, Ray Fowler, i got to give him credit uh, for uh, disclosing this initially. Uh, he gave, uh, he gave um, an interview to the Christian Science Monitor in 1972. Um, he happened to be working for Sylvania, which had the electrical contract uh, for the Minuteman 1 missile. And uh, it was his uh, uh, people out in the field that reported to him in fact, one of them saw the damn UFO. Uh, anyway, reported to him that uh, uh, the, these shutdowns were a U- UFO events. And, and so it was Fowler that, uh, out of frustration, uh, um, uh, finally gave an interview to the Christian Science Monitor because the Air Force would release this information. And that's how Timothy Good got a hold of the information and put it in his book, which I saw in 1994. 
Robert, how do you have a handle on how widespread or common it is for UFOs to shut down nuclear missiles in either the United well, States or other nuclear yeah. powerhouses? You know, I have to say uh, there were there are just two cases that I know of. Uh, in addition to the Malmstrom case, there was the Minot case in uh, 19, September of 1966, Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota. And this is what uh, David Shindelli testified to uh, during the citizens' hearing, that he was uh, relieved the crew on duty uh, that lost all 10 missiles during a UFO, during UFO sightings. Um, uh, that crew, uh, is nameless as far as I know. I, I don't know their names. I don't know if Shindelli recalls their names, but Shindelli testified to that fact. So, uh, that incident in September of 1966 and, uh, the two incidents I talk about, Echo and Oscar, in March of 67 are the only incidents that I know of where missiles were actually shut down. Now, there, there were other cases where there were uh, signals that made spurious signals within the command capsule uh, during the UFO event. Um, uh, there was one, uh, well, there were, there were many, there have been many of those. Um, uh, again, in, in Minot, one of those were Air Force Base. Now, in, in 2010, um, uh, again, this is um, uh, Francis C. Warren Air Force Base, um, and that's in Wyoming, uh, southeast corner of Wyoming, bordering Nebraska. Uh, this is the year 2010. The Air Force reported, uh, or had to report because they're, they're getting a lot of calls, that uh, 50 missiles, Minuteman 3 missiles, shut down. They claimed it was a computer glitch, uh, which is, <laughs> I, I don't believe. And uh, we also have witnesses, uh, both civilian and uh, some witnesses from inside the base that, that say they, they saw this giant, uh, large cigar-shaped object overhead during this missile shutdown. That's still something we're looking into to, to get verification, but... Um, um, can you describe, as you're relating this testimony to the six congressmen, former congressmen, can you, did you have a, a, a handle on, you know, what they might have been not thinking necessarily, but what was the reaction? What was the reaction as you're relating this? I mean, this must have been brand new information to them. Uh, I think it was. I, 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 the reaction was deer in the headlights. Uh, look uh, from from most of the panel, from what I could tell, uh, they were in, amazed. They were amazed that we were giving this testimony, and it was not just me, but of course it was uh, David Shindelli, David Scott, and Bruce Fenstermacher um, that basically told the same story: uh, UFOs over nuclear missile bases or nuclear missile sites that impacted uh, the missiles. Um, uh, again, this is a national security incident by anybody's definition. And the Air Force, uh, in official st 
statement has stated that no no UFO incident has ever affected national security, which is an outright lie. And um, well, uh, we, it's it's not just these guys that testify at the citizens' hearing, but there are many others that will testify to the same kind of thing. Well, the, taking off on, on Richard's question, I was in the room uh, sitting just to your left when you were giving your your testimony. And you have a very um, very clinical way of presenting the information that's just absolutely mind-blowing. You just have, have that sort of soft approach to, to something that's that explosive. And I can attest to you that you may not have been looking at all of the, uh, the congressmen, uh, congresswomen there at the time, but it, your description of, uh, you know, deer in the headlights is exactly what... They were shaking their heads, uh, Robert. They were just a completely... Uh, you know, flabbergasted by what they were hearing. And that brings me to the point of not just them, but do you think that the Pentagon has been in one way or another shaken by the fact that their nuclear missiles can be tampered with so easily with these UFOs flitting in and out of our airspace basically with impunity? These things come and go at will, with, and have been, uh, the United States government and its Air Force has absolutely no control over what's going on. Uh, what do you think is the feeling in the Pentagon about this well i can only speculate uh i do know that one of the documents we got back under the freedom of information act was uh, a telex that from strategic air command headquarters that stated uh, uh the fact that 10 nuclear missiles shut down for no apparent reasons is of grave concern to this command so they use those terms grave concern uh and uh, we have other witnesses that have stated that uh, one in particular who was bringing back the echo birds back up uh, 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 remained overnight at Echo One, and 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 he said that the, the place was just crawling with top brass uh, from uh, SAC headquarters. All right, Robert, let me just jump in here. Sorry to interrupt. We'll take a time out, come back, yep. continue our conversation with Captain Robert Salas, uh, UFOs and nuclear warheads. Here on The Conspiracy Show, Victor Vigiani joins us in studio from Zealand News Network. Don't go away. Welcome back. And this broadcast is the audio equivalent of Morpheus's Little Red Pill. Uh, we are speaking with Captain Robert Salas about UFOs and nukes and his testimony before the former congressman, six former congressman at the uh, citizen hearing back in uh, late April. Um, Robert, one of the surprising uh, things that happened at that hearing was it actually was um, reported on by, I believe it was the New York Daily News. Uh, And my understanding was, first they wrote an absolute hit piece uh, and there was such an outcry from the public that they had to send that reporter back and write a proper investigative piece. Uh, and that reporter uh, wrote about your testimony, and this was a mind blower, um, described how you and the gentleman sitting across from me, Victor Vigiani, actually had contacted a representative, Peter King, who was the chair of the Homeland Security Committee in Congress bringing this information to his attention. Now, what was Peter King's response? Well, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Friedman, I think was his name, wrote, wrote the piece for New York uh, 
paper, uh, New York Daily News, I think it was. And he asked Peter King, after I mentioned the fact that um, um, we had this ongoing initiative with um, contacting uh, Congressman King and giving him information such as what I just described to you. And, uh, and uh, King's uh, response was, oh, we get all kinds of crazy things from different people, uh, uh, like... Um, People like this one who has uh, whose brain has been taken over by aliens or something like that. It was it was pretty insulting. Uh, I, I felt insulted by it, especially since uh, uh, it was not just me, but uh, many others. Like I said, have, have given similar testimony. We we gave Mr. King. Uh, we've been right. We had been writing to Mr. King for over a year. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Victor, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, over a year and um, and sending him all sorts of documentation, including uh, affidavits from some of the witnesses about this. So he he knew very well. He should have known uh, because we had. Uh, I think Victor had documented pretty well uh, uh, receipt of this information and and, co- and also conversations with uh, uh, King's. Um, uh, people there, uh, so it was it was a complete insult. Um, I, I did get a chance to rebut it um, uh, at, at the time, and that, that rebuttal was printed in the paper. But I've also written another uh, another uh, statement about it uh, and published it on the web. Um, so let me just see if I can – let me summarize this. Let me see if I got this straight. Victor Vigiani and, and yourself um, contacted the office of Representative Peter King who was at the time the chair of the Homeland Security Committee in Congress. You brought this right. testimony to his attention going into great detail. Yes. Ten nuclear missiles shut down in 1967, earlier in 1966 at Minot Air Force Base. Uh, and his response, again, as chair of the Homeland Security Committee, was to basically attempt to slander and discredit you, a former member of the U.S. military. That was his That's response. Right. And let me get Victor in here because you were you were part yeah. of this campaign to bring this attention this to the attention of Representative Peter King, who has since stepped down. He's no longer chair. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's fair to say that the initiative began um, well before uh, December 17th, 2010, when Robert and myself and, and a third party began putting together all the information and deciding to bring this forward to the to the congressman because we felt that, uh, my goodness, this man, as, as chair of such a committee, would need to take this seriously and would obviously, in fact, do it. And in conversation with his uh, legislative assistant and scheduler, um, Michelle Ingerson, um, I spent many uh, phone calls with her, and she assured me that once we faxed all the information to the the, the congressman, we faxed it all, complete uh, uh, several pages, a dozen pages easily, uh, with the affidavits and a covering letter and uh, lots of other information regarding the, the missile shutdowns. Uh, she actually confirmed to me that, yes, we, we've received the information and we will show it to the congressman. 
And uh, some of the conversations that I had with her were very terse after that. And she literally indicated to me that she had no time to deal with this. That she was a very busy person, and that so was the congressman. And uh, you know, well, we'll give it to him, and he'll he'll deal with it. And in those conversations, I clearly got the idea that not only were we being forced to uh, being put in a corner, you know, but I was also felt I, I felt very strongly that we were in fact being lied to. So his office is not only uh, responsible for this this cover up, uh, as well as the congressman. And I have no trouble, uh, you know, laying blame right on the, in that office. And I'm, I'm extremely upset that a congressman would react this way to a national security issue. All right, uh, Robert Salas, stay with us. Victor, you do the same. We'll come back and continue to discuss UFOs and nukes. Imagine, in this era of the national security state, the United States, nuclear missiles being taken offline while UFOs are hovering above a military, a nuclear military installation. And the government says nothing about it. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network stays with us in studio. On the line is Captain Robert L. Salas, a former U.S. Air Force captain, uh, talking about a UFO incident in Melstrom Air Force Base in March of 67, where it was reported 10 nuclear missiles became non-operational at two different launch facilities immediately after guards saw UFOs hovering above. Just before the break, I mentioned uh, that uh, you, Victor, and another individual uh, sent this information to... Uh, Representative uh, Peter King, then the chair of the Homeland Security uh, Committee in Congress, and he essentially insulted you, Robert, and laughed off this entire uh, incident. Uh, Victor and I were just talking off air, and I was wondering, uh, in light of the, uh, you know, your testifying at the citizen hearing, it sounds like you may have six new allies, six former congressmen uh, in your in your corner. Have you given any thought, and I throw this out to Victor as well, have you given any consideration to this time having some or all of these uh, congressmen, former congressmen, trying to send this information to the new chair of the Homeland Security Committee in Congress? Uh, You know, could they as easily dismiss such uh, testimony coming from their former colleagues? What are your thoughts? Oh, I think that's a great idea, Richard. <laughs> uh, what what I had planned to do, and of course I've been involved in other projects like finishing my book, but what I still plan to do is um, send some of this material similar to what we sent to Congressman King to other members of the current Homeland Security Committee or Intelligence Committee on Homeland Security Um and, yeah, I think it would be an excellent idea to try to um, uh, get some of these congressmen that sat in on this uh, citizens' hearing to uh, uh, maybe write letters themselves to uh, some of these members. Uh, I'm sure some of them are, are known to these people. So I think that's an excellent approach. I think, uh, Richard's, I think Richard's just given us another job, uh, Robert. I think so. I think so. I, I just would like to uh, also reiterate, if I didn't mention it earlier, that uh, well after all of the communication with uh, with King's office, um, we decided to send uh, the exact same package of affidavits and covering letters, uh, not only to uh, King himself, uh, but we also did send uh, 
and I have the facts uh, uh, documentation to, to illustrate this, copies of all of this to each member of the National Security uh, Committee in the House of Representatives, as well as to members of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security. And uh, we did not reach all of them because some of the facts uh, was, was not accepted, but well over uh, three-quarters of each one of those committees were, in fact, uh, confirmed as receiving this information. So uh, this stuff is out there. And as far as I'm concerned, if a good reporter gets a hold of this information, I consider that front-page news that two committees have not said anything about this in any way, shape, or form in a public matter that their ICBMs have uh, been controlled by off-world craft. Well, even if you take – let's take the UFO out of the equation. For sure. Just the fact that they were taken offline. Mm -hmm. Ten in your case, uh, Robert. Ten missiles taken offline in 1967 and in, and in 2010, as recently as 2010. I mean, the entire landscape, yes, granted, the Cold War is over. But since 2001, 9-11, the entire landscape has changed. The United States, you are living in a national security state. And for something like that to go unacknowledged, or whether it's the, the UFO incident uh, at O'Hare uh, Airport in Chicago, uh, you know, this is restricted, Class B restricted airspace. I don't care if it's a UFO or whether it's a Cessna or whether it's whatever. It doesn't matter. For that to go unacknowledged by the people that are charged with, you know, keeping the nation safe, that to me, as you say, Victor, is definitely front page news. Uh, yeah, I think this also ties in with what's going on now uh, with regard to government secrecy. As you know, it's been in the news lately. But uh, there, That's one thing I write about in my, my new book, and, and that's the extreme secrecy in government. Uh, we have so much material that's being classified unnecessarily, and uh, we're, we're losing touch with our government uh, here in the United States and other places in the world because of this extreme secrecy. So that's the, the other aspect of this uh, that we're, we're trying to overcome. What? Sorry, go ahead. Finn. No, I was just saying that, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, do you sense and and. Uh, I, Having spent the week in Washington as a, as a Canadian, and, and it really is like dipping your foot into a, a, a different bucket of water completely because the, the mindset of most Americans is uh, extremely patriotic and, 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 and all of that. However, I just sense this growing detachment uh, among the public from them and their government. And uh, I just don't know, what. first of all, what's propelling that and how much further the American public is going to take that, that sort of uh, dissonance and, and react to it. Whether or not they will react to it uh, in terms of what the Obama government is doing and not doing in terms of secrecy. Is there any kind of feeling down there that people will respond to this kind of, of over, you know, pounding on their heads with this secrecy mallet? Uh, I, yes, I, I really do think the, the public has been outraged by discovering that the NSA is listening to the phone calls and reading the emails, things like that. Uh, I think that that outrage is going to is going to erupt uh, somehow. Um, uh, I, I have to believe that, it's, especially with the UFO question, that uh, they can't they can't suppress the truth of this indefinitely. 
So the initiatives that Stephen Bassett talked about, uh, as far as going to the United Nations, uh, we, we need those kinds of initiatives uh, to get uh, more world pressure uh, on the U.S. Uh, I think the U.S. is is kind of in the lead here in the, in the overall cover-up, what I call it cover-up. Uh, and so uh, I do believe pressure will come. What do you think, eventually. though, will lead to disclosure quicker? A United Nations hearing on this, similar, I guess, to the the recent citizen hearing, or one brave reporter sitting standing up at a... a um, a press conference or a briefing either at the Pentagon or at the State Department or at the White House asking that one pointed question. What's going to bring disclosure faster? Well, I, I think the United Nations will. Um, the problem with uh, a re- brave reporter coming forward <laughs> is that uh, the administration has already um, uh, submitted to the public their take on the UFO issue. Remember, uh, both myself and Steve Bassett. Uh, uh, got signatures for a petition petitioning the Obama administration to come clean about the UFO issue, and uh, and the response we got uh, is basically what UFO issue? There's there's nothing to this. Uh, it, of course, they didn't do any research. Uh, they just made a blanket statement that there was nothing to this. Um, so. If a reporter came to the White House and asked the same question, they would get the same kind of answer. Uh, this goes very deep. Of course, the secret uh, is held very deeply in, in the bowels of uh, intelligence agencies and other places in the Pentagon. And they're not about to um, uh, release the information uh, without um, uh, a very, very strong push uh, by the public and by by the administration. Well, I think the idea of the United Nations initiative is an excellent one because it will, in in effect, um, it, you may or may not agree, Rob, but uh, take this out of the hands of the United States government. Uh, now, that, that that points to the fact that the United Nations may be sort of a puppet organization of uh, you know the military and you know, governmental intelligence agencies within the United States. But the fact that the United Nations makes a statement about this and kind of removes it from the uh, the, the realm of control that the United States has over this embargo, uh, it may well be the, the, the ideal placement of this issue on a national stage, or rather on an international stage. Right. Uh, I just returned from Brazil and gave a, a talk there, and uh, I'm, I'm really heartened by, uh, in, in April, I think of this year, the Brazilian um, uh, Pentagon, equivalent of the Brazilian uh, Defense Department, met with uh, uh, UFO groups in, in Brazil and, and agreed to exchange of information. So, and, and that's going on in Argentina and Peru, other places down in South America. I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that there, there seems to be more cooperation by governments uh, with UFO groups. Uh, so possibly that will help spur uh, one of those countries to come forward in, in the General Assembly and uh, issue a statement. Of course, the incident that you were you were part of occurred during the height of the Cold War, uh, Robert. Have you ever had a, had occasion to speak with your former Cold War foes, your counterparts in the former Soviet Union, to find out if they've had similar incidents? 
I haven't spoken with anyone directly, um, but of course uh, there was that case in 1982, I believe it was, um, where a UFO was sighted over a Russian um, nuclear missile and actually started the missile on its uh, its launch sequence. <laughs> it was actually going uh, to launch and they were able to inhibit that in time. But um, uh, yes, there certainly have been incidents in, in the Soviet Union involving UFOs and nuclear weapons. All right. Well, listen, we look forward to uh, the release of uh, your new book, Unidentified. When, when can we expect that? That's out right now. It is. Can, uh, if you go to Amazon.com, uh, you can purchase it through Amazon or any of your listeners. And again, the title is Unidentified. That's right. Captain Robert Salas, thank you so much. I look forward to speaking with you again soon down the road. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Victor, for, for all you've done uh, in this effort. Appreciate your time. Captain you Captain Robert Salas. All right, so there you go, Victor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I think you're absolutely spot on when you say that that should be, uh, if all things were right in the world, that should be front page news, where nuclear missiles are taken offline, they become non-operational, and yet no one says anything mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, I just picture myself as a you know remote viewer or a fly in the wall, depending on how you want to look at it within uh, some of the intelligence agency offices or the Pentagon uh, once these things uh, either have happened or when they're discussed and what they actually say about them. And there's there's the idea that you know some of the officials don't know anything about the UFO issue or whatever it happens to be. But if even if you remove it, like you said, from the, the UFO, from the equation, these men have to be talking about the significant manipulation of massive weapons of mass destruction by forces beyond their control. I cannot see, how, for the life of me, how this cannot be an extremely dramatic a part of uh, American history that they're just not talking about. And that silence, to me, is just uh, deafening. Yes, further evidence of this uh, truth embargo. All right. Well, always appreciate your time. Good to see you again, my friend. Thanks for dropping by. You're most welcome. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network. All right. Thank you to Tim Spreen for uh, production. Uh, back next week. What have we got on tap for you? Well, it'll be up on the website soon. Check it out, richardserrett.com. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.